Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today I'm joined by Professor Thomas Lawton. Thomas is Professor of Strategy and International Business and Director of the Global Competitive Institute at Cork University Business School. He is a visiting professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth and the University of Surrey and an associate at the Muller Institute, University of Cambridge. His research focuses on non-market strategy, international political risk management and business model innovation. He has published eight books, including Breakout Strategy, and that is the subject we'll be talking about today, how to grow out of a crisis, and in particular relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So Thomas, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Hugh. Thank you. Uh, delighted to be with you. I'm, I'm very well today. Thanks, Hugh. Lovely. I, I want to start with the, the subject everyone's studiously avoiding right now, maybe happily so, Brexit. Um, no. Firstly, do you think it will ha still happen next year as scheduled? It will make it a pretty tumultuous 12 months to strategize for. I believe it will, Hugh. I think the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, has staked his reputation on it. Mm. So I doubt, if, I doubt if he's going to step back from it now. Obviously, there's brinkmanship going on again, as there has been for quite a while. But my, my belief is that there will be some form of deal done or agreement mm. uh, arranged by the end of the year, whether it'll be one that we like in Ireland is another question, but um, I'm pretty sure that it will go ahead, yes. And the, the main reason I bring up Brexit really is, is that it's a foreseen economic shock that you could prepare for, and, and many organizations have been doing exactly that. Now we're having an unforeseen economic shock. Can we take lessons from those Brexit preparations and apply them right now? I believe we can, Hugh. In fact, last year I did a sort of Brexit tour of Ireland and parts of the UK with a group of people from the States mm. where we met lots of organizations, companies, government organizations, etc., who were preparing for Brexit. And it made you realize how people were being very creative in how they were preparing for that. Mm. Uh, one, one great example is if you take the food industry in this country and companies like Carberry Group down here in Cork, for example, that have been transitioning uh, some of their production away from cheddar cheese, where a lot of the consumption and the market opportunity would be in the UK, into mm. mozzarella, for example. And yes. they've been doing, doing deals, as you might have heard, through Enterprise Ireland with um, US uh, fast food companies, for example, for the production of mozzarella cheese. So I think that sort of creative thinking where you're repositioning your product offering and your market opportunity is what needs to be done. The key here, of course, is that companies have the time to plan yeah. and the time to be proactive, which for the pandemic and other things, which are what might be called black swan events, or very unexpected events that can have a, a cataclysmic or a significant impact on companies and markets, then uh, many companies are, are caught unaware really, and they're not ready to, for these, these sorts of events. Mm. So let's, let's look at those sort of levers that you can pull in, in a crisis. Um, what are the things that leaders can do beyond needing to survive? Um, what's the mindset maybe we should start there that they should be taking right now? And a few well, examples would be great, actually, just for us to latch on to. Sure, happy to do so. The main word or the key word for me, which I always uh, bang on about really, is proactive. Mm. And when one does strategy, unfortunately, and I've, I've been involved in strategy now for 25 plus years in terms of academia, in terms of consultancy and so forth, and I still see time and time again that companies are reactive in how they approach strategy. Mm. They do so, um, they're driven by perhaps external pressures, um, which, which can come from shareholders, for example, or from regulatory demands. 
and they're doing strategy in a way that is 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 short term as perhaps as well mm-hmm. um, and they're not they're not preparing for unexpected events they're not building agility into the way they do it so they're they're very they're very reactive but in terms of of responses the kind of things that i've tracked over the years hugh in terms of responses to to recessions in this case to pandemics mm. and the economic fallout from that i would say there are probably four key things that I've seen are four key responses, perhaps. And I'm going to refer to those as follows, Hugh. The first is what you might call the panic strategy. The panic mm-hmm. strategy, we could also call reactive negative. Mm-hmm. A good example would be Debenhams. Another example might be Oasis Warehouse. We see, we see these companies that are, that are being stripped out of the high street now or out of the, out of the shopping malls obviously pushback and, and concern about uh, what happens to workers and so forth. But this is very much reactive negative. And these are companies that one could argue were only kept artificially alive, actually, by a buoyant market and by, by consumer purchasing mm. during the good times. Mm. But when things start to go bad and go, go south, the, the, the cash is not there. And in many ways, the value proposition is not sharp and appealing anymore. And these companies then go to the wall very quickly. The second strategic response to recession, pandemics, and, and, and crises would be what I call protect, or you might also call protect reactive neutral. And reactive neutral is companies that typically would furlough workers, for yeah. example. So we see Ryanair, we see Aer Lingus, we see companies like that doing that right now. So they recognize they want to keep these people for various reasons. Um, so furloughing them or putting them on maybe three-day weeks or, 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 or two-day weeks or whatever it might be is what they typically do in order to protect what they have to be ready for, for the, the, the sort of resurgence again once things mm. pick up. A third um, strategic response that I identify would be perhaps less observed, but what I call cloak, cloaking strategy. And cloaking strategy is... Another way of putting that is reactive positive. And these are companies that take advantage of the crisis, what, yeah. what Winston Churchill once referred to, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> they, take it, they take advantage of the crises to restructure. Um, I think this might be happening at British Airways and at the parent company, IAG, under Willie Walsh's yeah. um, stewardship, where they are going through some significant restructuring that they possibly wanted to do anyway but they kind of take, take the opportunity now to do so. And then it's the final... Oh, sorry, sorry. No, keep going, keep going. Yeah, no, the, the final one is what I call conquer, conquering strategy, which is a proactive approach. These are companies that are, that are, are you know, strong, rich companies with significant cash flow. Um, we can think of the Amazons, the Googles, big yeah. pharma companies, and these are taking advantage, or they will be taking advantage if they're not doing so already, <laughs> of the, the market, which is, which is, you know, sort of moving into a bear market where we're seeing a lot of um, drop in, if, if you look at the, the in indices in New York, for example, in the last couple of days where they're down significantly, they're going to go on a, on a purchasing, purchasing spree most likely. They're going to buy out small companies, competitors that are ailing and so on and so forth in order to come out stronger from all of this. I would say just listening to you there, I would I would categorize most companies probably in the middle too. They don't have quite the resources for uh, the conquering mode, but they may not also have the mindset of that sort of austerity mode at the other end. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in that box, are you seeing common mistakes organizations are making during a crisis and making again? You talked about sort of reactive. Anything beyond that? I think so. I get, you know, again, it's that issue of being reactive or defensive during mm. crises, which so many business leaders and organizations fall back into that default mode. And one understands that at a human level, you can understand that because you're managing a lot of different moving parts and much of it you don't have control over and government policy is evolving and so on and so forth. But I can mm. understand that at a human level. However, the danger I think is that the customer gets sidelined in all of this and yeah. the, the growth trajectories out of the crises are also either sidelined or secondary considerations at this point in time. And, and that's again where you come back to the strategic mindset versus the more tactical mindset. And I think many business leaders have a more tactical rather than strategic mindset. Do you think in a crisis such as this, you should almost stop thinking about sort of saving the business because it's now an old business and should be thinking about recreating a new business for this new environment? Yeah, that's a great question, Hugh. And I think you're right. I think that the notion of kind of reimagining the business and taking uh, taking the opportunity of something like this. And again, yeah. it's it's difficult. Look, we're all we're all suffering right now in different ways mm. uh, because of this. But I think if one is to be again strategic, one has to say, okay, now is a, t- a time to reflect, reflect on what we are, where we are, how we are, uh, what kind of customers we have today, what kind of customers we might have tomorrow. And, and we think that, and you know, in, in the education space, there's a lot of that going on right now at universities and at business schools, a lot of, a lot of toing and froing about obviously online learning, blended learning, yeah. face-to-face and so on and so forth. Um, some of the providers are probably behind and reactive on this. Some are actually reimagining things and saying, well, look, how do we leverage platforms here in a way whereby moving forward, perhaps we have a more blended approach, for example, and that's mm. okay, we can, we can make that work. Um, or some schools might be thinking, for example, my U.S. affiliation at the Tuck School at Dartmouth, which is a, an Ivy League university, where they are very much predicated on the kind of customized experience, if you will, that is mm. provided to MBAs or other students. So I think schools like that are going to find we, we need to get back to the face-to-face fast because that's really what makes us tick. Other schools that are maybe at the kind of um, – lower price point end of the market in some yeah. sense kind of will be saying, look, we need to move online much more aggressively here and kind of pile them high, sell them cheap type approach, if you like, that, uh, that, that uh, is, is advocated in other sectors. So I think this is definitely a time to rethink, to reimagine and to reposition perhaps. Yeah. And, and any advice in, in terms of that, it, it, like we're talking here about cutting through a lot of culture, cutting through politics. You were talking through there. One of the things that came to my mind was this crisis has given IMI in our place the opportunity to get all the big brains in one room over consecutive days to work on single projects. Um, Is there any advice that you'd give to leaders out there that says, okay, I have this opportunity, things are disrupted, this is how I can tie them together and, and focus it? Yeah, again, it's, it's sort of building on what I've just been saying, because I think it is, you are pushing somewhat at an open door during times yeah. of crisis. So I think if you want to go through a reorganization or restructuring, now is the time to, to push that forward, I would say. Um, again, you know, that's going to cause some pain for some people, perhaps. 
and there'll be many people who might resist that, but it's more difficult to, to resist that kind of change when things, are, when things are bad, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of the natural human condition. So yes, absolutely. Now is the time to, I would say, get leadership together, but also don't forget, you know, don't forget the end user, right? Call them the customer, call them, we're talking about education, it becomes more complicated as, yeah. as a customer, as a student, uh, but engaging those to find out what are they thinking about all of this and what do they expect from you moving forward? I think they have to be paramount. You know, without putting the customer, client at the epicenter of strategy, you're not going to have a successful strategic outcome. So I think it's important to engage various stakeholders at this point in time, not just internal, but, but external as well, in a rethink, redesign of, of IMI, but of any organization. Really. Yeah. And we, we've talked a lot about the, the fundamentals and, and reimagining. And you mentioned the value proposition. Is this the time to get all your senior executives on a Friday afternoon and get a blank business value proposition and redraw it? Yeah, I think, again, you know, I've done a lot of work on value propositions over the years, mm. and I think there are, there are different ways one can, one can look at that. I think, um, firstly, it has to be aligned with the vision. So I think one has to be careful that you don't redefine the value proposition in a way mm. that takes you away from two things. You One is... The, the vision, which and a vision for me, by the way, is a sense of purpose and direction, mm. purpose and direction of the organization. So it has to be aligned with the, with the existing or emergent even vision of the enterprise or organization. But also, I think it has to be aligned with, with your capabilities, with what you can do and what you're good at, right? And what people know you for. So there's a danger, perhaps, of redefining a value proposition in an unrealistic way, which makes it difficult for you as an organization to de deliver on that consistently to the customer. So one has to be careful about that. But at the same time, I think one can think about some of the key elements of a value proposition, for example, where you are on pricing, where you are on innovation. And if we think about online delivery, innovation, and the features which come from innovation are obviously key. And many of us, again, we've mentioned earlier about the way in which IMI responded to this and at UCC as, as uh, you know, the, We've also, more broadly speaking, been doing this. And I think a lot of universities that have been talking about online for the last five to eight years, maybe 10 years, mm. and not actually moving very far, literally within the space of probably three weeks, yeah. have, have, have been able to move everything online. And again, it just shows how crises can focus the mind, right? And, and get everybody aligned behind what needs to be done. Now, moving forward, obviously, we're, for the next academic year, we have to plan online as well because we don't know how things are going to work out. Mm -hmm. We'd like to get back to face-to-face, -to -face, but I think it's, um, it, it does focus the mind. So with value proposition, think, think about innovation for sure. Think about perhaps how you get to market, so channels, distribution, channels to market clearly with education or IMI. Right mm -hmm. now, we, we're moving towards uh, blended and online very much. We'll see how that uh, how that evolves further down the line. And then things like brand and reputation coming from that as well. Is there an opportunity to rethink the reputation and the brand of the, of the organization moving forward from this as well? And um, you mentioned there about getting to markets. Um, so let's go back to those Brexit preparations. Um, a lot of that was about expanding into new uh, international markets. You were mentioning that sort of cheddar to, to fettuccine example. 
what are the kinds of what are the kinds of things organizations should be looking for when trying to expand into new international markets, particularly during this situation? Um, is it even a time to even think about it? Um, it's it's a challenging time for sure, and again, it depends on where you're positioned, right? I mean, for example, the the liquidity and the cash flow, etc., of a company is, is going to be a crucial determinant mm. of of how you're able to move once things open up somewhat again, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is what exactly you're selling and, and what sort of appeal there is for that abroad. And if you look at companies, say in the small or medium-sized sector, you look at how they internationalize, they often do so, many do so as part of a network. So they go mm -hmm. abroad with some of their, their large clients, take them abroad in the sense, right? And then they build from there. Some of them go abroad in uh, what, what we call a stages approach, wherein mm -hmm. you go initially to um, a, a, an environment or a market which you know well, and which is proximate. So an Irish company going to the United Kingdom is an yeah. obvious example. And you learn from that, you, you gain resource, gain experience. And from there, you become more courageous, if you will, and you're willing to take on more risk. So you might go from there into, into mainland Europe, into France or the Netherlands or whatever and so forth, right? That's, those are kind of logical processes and, and, and uh, strategic practices, I would say. Yeah. Some companies are what we call born global. These are companies that might be purely online organizations. And of course, we've had many of those in, say, fintech. We see fintech as something where, where we've had some real successes. And those, you know, the market is global from day one. The customer base might be global from day one and so on and so forth. So I think the starting point is, is key here. But I would say there are a number of, um, of, of things that we need to be aware of and a number of things that, number of practices as well that we need to, we need to think about here. Um, you know, if I were, would you like me to kind of just go through a number of practices? I think that yeah, are let, let's do that, and and maybe do it as practices from the the both the inexperienced and experienced side, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. So I think again, from my own work, I would identify probably eight key practices that any let's say Irish company should be aware of, and I think these are relevant to both small and large companies both experienced and inexperienced companies internationally, but there are obviously some variances on this. So the first key practice for internationalization is international is because you have a compelling logic to do so. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're internationalizing proactively, not because you're forced to, not because, you know, for example, the whole market has become stagnant or has entered recession. Therefore, you need to sell your goods. Therefore, you need to find some other place to do it. But actually, yeah. you're internationalizing because you want to, because you believe that you have something that will sell abroad that you can scale internationally, right? So there's a, there's a compelling logic behind why you're doing it. The second practice is look for a good match, which maybe sounds obvious, right? <clears throat> what do I mean by good match? But I think there are two elements of that. The first one is the regulatory fit. Yeah. And again, it depends on what you're doing and what you're selling, but you might find that the regulatory environment for what you're doing could be very problematic abroad. Um, and I think things like, if we think about the food sector, for example, that can be challenging because something like, like food, because the second dimension of, of fit is the customer, customer taste. So regulatory um, challenges and barriers and, and customer preference and taste. So if we talk about food, one has to be conscious of, there will be, significant variance on that. Some of the big Irish food companies like Kerry Group have been quite effective at moving into the Middle East and, and uh, 
for example, buying operations in places like Oman in the last two years yeah. and using that as a, as a launch pad into the Middle East and into parts of North Africa and, and other parts of Africa, perhaps. And I think that makes sense, but one, one then has to reconfigure the, uh, perhaps the product, for example, uh, in order to, to, to meet those expectations. Third practice would be drawing on experience and expertise, your own and others. And sometimes, for example, if we think about small companies internationalizing, you might have a resource in-house that you haven't thought about. What do I mean by that? Well, we have, what is it, one in eight people in Ireland were, were, were brought, born abroad. You know, we have a significant proportion of, of citizens as well as non-citizens mm -hmm. here that are international. If they're working for you, they might actually serve as a bridgehead. You know, you want to enter yeah. the Polish, Polish market, for example. You may have Polish people um, in your management team that might be quite effective and help you to enter that market. Mm -hmm. um, we also have some fantastic resource, even though we're a small country with, uh, a, traditionally, I would say, a relatively underfunded, perhaps, um, <laughs> dip diplomatic core. But they punch above their weight. You know, I've always been very impressed by the Irish diplomatic corps. And the semi-state bodies with enterprise. And the semi-state bodies, exactly. You know, IDA, Enterprise Ireland, etc. There's massive resource in these organizations that really help. And I've seen these help people abroad, help companies in places like Singapore. I remember uh, being there one time and meeting with the ambassador and, and really knowledgeable, networked people, right? And they mm. can help you to say, this is who you can talk to here, right? Um, this is maybe who you can trust as an entry point. Yeah. Um, and that gets to the fourth practice, which is choosing partners carefully and wisely, mm. because it's very easy to get burned, of course, when you're entering into foreign markets where you don't know the practices, the norms, the behaviors, who to trust. So I think sometimes that uh, expertise can help you to, to, uh, to get a, an entry point there. The fifth practice is don't rely on what has worked before or what has worked elsewhere, <clears throat> what's called path dependency. I think there's yeah. a danger of companies to say, look, we went into Britain and we did this and this and this, and it worked really well. So let's kind of do the same thing in the Netherlands because we think that's not too dissimilar. Can that's I just challenge you, challenge you yeah. on that one? Please. So I, I, I would agree with on the, on the face, but so copy and paste culture is always wrong. But there's also that thing on this was our strategy here. Let's implement it here. And fair enough, we, we should be agile about it. But this has worked. Let's, let's just go with this. Why, why wouldn't that be a good mindset to have? So I think it depends on how we unpack the word strategy there, Hugh, because mm, okay, yeah. it's a big term. So I think in terms of, say, your, your, your vision, your value proposition, that might be consistent. However, mm. your business model and your mode of entry might not be. So, you know, when we think about strategy and we, do, we, we divide it into, let's say, four key sections or elements, which are vision and mission, customer value proposition, business model and operationalization tactics or modes of entry for foreign markets, mm. then I would say the first two, you should keep pretty consistent as you're saying, but with the business model um, and with the mode of entry, for example, I think there might need to be change there. Uh, yeah. Things like jo you know, joint venture, for example, is, is a great example. But in, in some market you might enter in a, in a kind of dominant position where you have a majority JV have more control in other markets it may, may it may be more prudent to enter as a minority stakeholder um, mm. and then over time you might up the ante you know what's called you know uh, you, you might actually decide to increase your stake as you learn and get get more confident in the market um, and then the last couple of practices um, practice six is go after the less obvious 
And uh, we can come back to that one because I think it's really important because it's, you know, for Irish companies, there's, there's a 10, uh, we'll, we'll come back to this, I think, but think about countries, markets where maybe you, you, you haven't got any presence or you haven't even thought about perhaps. Think also about regions and cities within large countries. Um, you know, when you're entering into China, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, these tend to be quite saturated markets, yes. very difficult to enter, to compete in, and so on and so forth. There are many, many secondary and even, even third-tier cities in places like China or India, where, or the United States for that matter, where you might find it much easier to, to find partners, uh, the cost will be lower, the, the overall barriers to entry might be lower because mm. they, want your, they want your business there. Now, of course, you have to build that market, and there's a kind of what we call pioneering cost associated with that, but it can be also a better, a better tactic. Um, seventh and second last would be go where it's more accessible and easy. There are a bunch of different indices out there that we can look at, ease of doing business and various measures on how to choose international markets. But I think you know, thinking about places that are fairly easy to enter and set up your business and do business makes a lot of sense. So rather than, for example, operating, if you're going to Southeast Asia, massive opportunity in Indonesia, massive growth, massive population, yeah. but very challenging place to set up a business and to do business in, particularly as, a, as an outsider, right, as an Irish company say. So you might find that Singapore, even though it's, it's more expensive, but it's a much easier place to enter and to do business in, to set up your business, to register, mm. to pay your taxes, to do all of those kind of uh, normal practices and, and to use Singapore, say, as a, as a, a, as a drop-off point or as a bridgehead into neighboring markets like Malaysia, Indonesia, and further afield. Um, and then finally, commit for the long term. I think it's really important when we enter international markets not to be seen as being opportunistic. Mm. So I think to embed yourself in the in those markets, meaning that, uh, and that can take different forms. You, you know, it might mean, for example, hiring local management yeah. rather than just shipping in your own people. It might mean um, in, engaging in corporate responsibility initiatives, for example, engage with local communities and 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 creating stakeholder engagement through different means, uh, engage with governments for for maybe long term R and D and investment opportunities, and so on and so forth. Um, I just want to pick out one part of that, and that's partnerships. Um, so an Irish CEO is sitting at the desk and thinking, we, we, should, we could definitely sell our product in Hungary. And these guys look like dis decent distributors or partners. To summarize those eight points in a sort of, again, let's use the mindset word, what should that CEO be wary of and what should get them excited? So I think it's, um, again... All of the practices that I mentioned are relevant. Now, if we talk about, say, mm. Hungary or, or neighboring countries in Central and Eastern Europe, and I, I know that part of the world pretty well. I know Hungary quite well. It's, um, it's part of the European Union. So from that point of view, there's a certain degree of, of commonality that, that we can play against. It's not within the Eurozone, of course. So you've got mm. currency challenges and maybe currency risk associated with entering markets like Hungary, Poland, or some of the other um, non-Eurozone European countries, you have institu so-called institutional risks. Uh, you know, you have issues around the the uh, rule of law, for example, the applicability of that to foreign companies versus local companies, and you know, in many countries, but even in many other European countries. And again, the choice of partner. So, a country like Hungary is a fantastic place. 
in terms of say logistics, you know, if you think about mm. it, the opportunity to move from Hungary into Germany, into Poland, yeah. into Ukraine even, and further afield, it's a really good kind of um, central hub and logistics center for many other markets. So there's a great opportunity, opportunity in that. Again, the choice of partners is gonna be key, right? Because if you're going in either as a joint venture or, or even, even some kind of a strategic alliance that's not quite JV, then um, your choice of local partners is going to be key. Sometimes it might pay to go with the established partners that might be even international players. They're mm. going to be more expensive. Right? It, it, you're going to have a yeah. cost there, but you're probably going to have more reliability, more consistency, uh, and less risk by doing so, rather than going perhaps with a smaller, cheaper local partner, for example. Perfect. Uh, just before we leave sort of that uh, expanding into to basic markets, real quick, is there any basic tips for leaders looking for good markets to expand into big world? Can you narrow it down at any way? Yeah, the, if you think, um, again, it's, it's, it's almost like levels or layers of risk, Hugh, because obviously the further afield you go and the more you go into so-called new frontier markets, and new frontier markets are the kind of fast emerging markets that are beyond the... the the places that we hear a lot about, for example, much of South, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of Latin America, parts of Southeast Asia, where the growth is often between four and eight percent, the annual growth rates. So again, we'll see, we'll see what happens after the pandemic, but that's yeah. what, what we've been seeing. Um, so for example, if you think about South America, it's an interesting place. Think about Latin America, countries like Colombia and Peru have significant growth rates, significant population growth, um, actually some interesting connectivities with Ireland historically, mm. and I think we, there's goodwill there. In fact, UCC, our president uh, was in Colombia last year, creating, assigning some, some memoranda of agreement there with some of the universities, and we see opportunity in places like Colombia. And there's, there's a, a goodwill predicated on historical resonance with, you know, if you think of some of the liberation leaders and uh, Simon Bolivar, for example, some of his right-hand uh, men and lieutenants would have Irish heritage or might have been from Ireland, in fact. And you know, places like, like Peru, we have historical connections that come through the Catholic Church as well as through individuals that might have gone there. So there, there's a goodwill in many of these countries that I think we could leverage to, to, to get into these places, even though there is significant risk. Yeah. There, is, there, there are hurdles like corruption is something that is a key hurdle in many parts of the world that, that we have to deal with, as well as uh, the role of government, regulatory uh, challenges that exist in those markets and so on and so forth. So I think places like Colombia and Peru are really interesting in South America, if you can overcome that, that risk factor or find a way to, to mitigate that. In uh, Africa, Nigeria, Uganda, these kinds of markets, again, population is growing very fast. GDP is growing very quickly. These are interesting markets, but they're high risk. They're challenging mm. markets, but there is massive opportunity in these places. And again, there are some footprints and some connectivities into those places that we can we can leverage. Uh, into Asia, Malaysia, I mean, Indonesia, I mentioned already. India, obviously, very large, yeah. very complex place. But again, we have a lot of a lot of Indian nationals now in Ireland. That that uh, you know, a lot of individuals that could be could be kind of leveraged to enter into these markets. Vietnam, people talk about that as well as a fast-growing emerging yeah. economy. So these are the kind of places, uh, Philippines even as well, even though a lot of natural disasters there again recently, but high growth rate and uh, high population. So if we measure it, again, depends on what you look at. If you look at things like GDP growth, if you look at things like population growth, 
these are the kinds of markets of the future that Irish companies should be looking at. However, if you look at ease of doing business and the, the World Bank uh, have, a, have an, in, an indices on that every year, for example, these countries don't do so well. These are mm. harder countries to get into, to set up your business, to do business in. And that's the trade-off that you're going to have here. And that's why the mode of entry, the use of partners and so forth is probably going to be more important to get into those markets, at least initially. Uh, could you just mention the name of the article there, the eight key practices, just so people can find it if they, they want to go and look? Yeah, so there was um, there was there have been a number of pieces that I've written. Uh, there was an article on RTE Brainstorm. So if they go to the RTE Brainstorm website, eight tips for Irish companies looking for new international markets. It's a piece that I wrote there. It came out last year. I think it was August 2019. But I think if you just go to RTE Brainstorm, you'll see that. Um, also, there was a recent piece in the Irish Times, which came out, um, I think it was May the 8th, on uh, the lessons from COVID, COVID-19, the, the, the improbable can very quickly become the possible. So that's an Irish Times piece from, from May. So those are two, two um, easy read kind of pieces in the media that people could have a look at. Perfect. And let's, let's end, um, and this is an impossible question to answer because you're going <laughs> to, what, what, what am I CEO of and, and what are the market I'm, I'm, I'm operating in? But I'm just looking for sort of key fundamental things. If you're sitting down and writing a strategy now to get you out of coronavirus pandemic and all the associated problems, mainly like cash restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, what are the things you are considering right now? What are those sort of um, table of contents, I suppose, items you're, you're picking out? Sure. So I think, let me, let me just first say, Hugh, that I think one has to be a little bit careful that one doesn't rely on, on future contingency plans, for example, because I think a lot of companies right now, for example, are developing contingency plans. Yeah. And, they, and that's important. That's good because that's, but for me, contingency plans are kind of process-led resilience oriented and mm. in some ways they're they're perhaps more defensive mm. and of course we might need that but they're not necessarily focused on agility or entrepreneurial behavior uh, opportunity seeking and so on and so forth mm. uh, in a more proactive way so i think one needs to i think have both probably ideally where you've got that resilience focus as well as a, an agility focus within your mindset within your your approach to the markets um i think one has to double down what we might call an ambidextrous approach. You have to double down on your existing customer base, make sure that your, your customers are happy and that you're not going to lose them, particularly during this time of crises, that perhaps their needs have changed or evolved at this time and you need to respond to that very quickly, make sure that they're happy and they're going to stay with you. Um, in addition to that, you might find new ways to sell to those customers. You know, we talked about online, for example, blended learning and everything else. There might be new ways to sell uh, additional resource or additional services to existing customers. Secondly, I think, so that's, that's, that's the kind of ambidextrity. That's, that's the idea of, of focusing on, on, on the, the here and now in a sense. In addition to that, one has to focus on the opportunities and the growth uh, ways that we've given during this discussion, we've given numerous examples of that. We can think about those internationally. We can think about those in terms of developing your value proposition further and in new ways. But I think we really need to be focused on the, the notion of kind of ex exploiting your existing customer base and exploring for new opportunities and new markets and new customer base in Ireland and internationally. 
Super. It's a, it's a good place to end it. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. That was fascinating. Um, I hope people got a lot out of it. And um, I suppose stay safe, as to say to everybody. Thanks, you. It's been my pleasure and my best to everybody during this time.